You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. Welcome to Citizens, and this is our first Sunday looking at the epistle to James. So we'll be spending the next 11 weeks looking in detail at this little book. So if you have a Bible or a phone and you haven't done it already, let me just encourage you to swipe there or turn there, whatever it is. And we're going to look at this passage that we just heard read to us. James is an interesting book. Just to give you some background and some context to the book before we kind of dig into the passage, James, by most scholars' accounts, is the brother of Jesus. Can you imagine that? Jesus is your brother. And James is someone who didn't just grow up saying yes to everything that God was showing and revealing to him. He's actually a skeptic. And for most of his life, when it comes to Jesus and what Jesus was about, uh, James was a doubter. He didn't think that Jesus was God. He didn't think that, you know, Jesus was up to good things. It actually says in Mark 3, for those of you who were here in our Mark series, remember in Mark 3, um, Jesus is out doing ministry, and it says that James, well, it doesn't say him by name, but it says that Jesus' family, they come to Jesus in the middle of him doing ministry and doing miracles, and they're like, we got to take this guy home. Because they say, Mark records in the text, that their thought is what Jesus is doing is going to lead to his ruin, lead to Jesus' own ruin. And so James was of that mind. He was like, what Jesus is doing in his ministry is crazy. He thinks he's God. That's nuts. He's my brother. I mean, come on. This is who he is, Jesus. And so what happened in James's life? Like, what's with the shift to suddenly becoming someone who writes an epistle? Well, most theologians and historians believe that James, when he witnessed Jesus' life and even the, the ministry, doubting all that, eventually watches his brother get hung on a cross and watches him bleed out and die. And maybe even watches or hears the story of him being laid into a tomb and he's gone. And then within a few days, James sees his brother. Sees his brother walking around Jerusalem, walking around, meeting with people. We have texts that say that Jesus is eating with people. And it's believed that once James saw the resurrected Jesus, his life was changed, never to be the same. And he went on to be a strong leader for the early church. And this epistle that we have is one of the first letters that is actually written. It's estimated it comes around like the early 40s AD. So we're talking within less than 10 years of Jesus probably dying, rising, and going back to the Father. So James comes to us as a letter written from a skeptic. And it comes to us in a very plain and kind of in-your-face kind of way. James is not Canadian, okay? James doesn't kind of soften things and make it easy for us to hear. If you've read James really intently, you'll see that James is like straight in your face with the truth. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't do what Paul does in most of his letters, which is kind of make a, a theological case for an idea and then bring application you know, from that theological case, James is just like, here's what you got to do. You want to follow Jesus? 
You want to be a disciple of his? This is how you're going to live. Bang, straight out of the gate. No explanation. He kind of like puts some explanation in there. But generally, it's just there for you to take or to leave, to love or to hate. And in our passage this morning, James begins straight off the bat with hard things. He talks about the testing of our faith. The testing of our faith. Now, most of us, I'm, I'm guessing here, we're all very similar. We don't like tests. You know, you can think back to high school or university. We don't like the, the whole experience of a test. Maybe it makes you nervous. But we also all appreciate tests, that things have been proven, that they work. Even, even a test, we would hope that the, the doctor that is giving us care has done what needs to be done. He's not just kind of like, I failed all those tests, but, you know, I can handle this case. No, he's actually proven himself. Or the bridge that we're driving over has been tested by engineers or by somebody to make sure that it can handle the load that's going across it. We live in a world where we appreciate the product of the test. And so James comes straight to us here in the beginning and says, there is a testing that is coming your way, a testing of faith. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, I'm not sure if you've ever read that book, it's a fictional story of two demons and the correspondence back and forth between these two demons. And Screwtape is writing to Wormwood, and he is encouraging him and giving him words of advice in, in trying to convince him or help this demon to derail the faith of a new Christian. And that's kind of the premise of the whole book. It's all these short little letters saying, like, you can do all these things to derail this guy from being a believer. And in the, early on in the book, Screwtape writes to Wormwood and he says this. He says, it occurs when lovers have got married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. And Screwtape is saying, listen, Wormwood, here's what you got to do. This is, this is all you got to do right from the beginning. Make things a little bit difficult. There's like all these dreamy aspirations of what life is going to be like. Everything's going to be good. Everything's going to be smooth. The marriage is going to be great. The kids are going to be wonderful. The job is going to be fantastic. Screwtape says all you got to do is make things a little bit more difficult. Make them hard. And that'll take care of it. It will derail this guy right off of his faith in God. And James starts with that note for us, that there is testing that is coming. And he's asking us to consider, will it derail us? Will it take us off the path of what it means to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus? So he begins with this test, which is the trials that come before us. Look at verse Two. Verse 2 says this, James 1, chapter 2. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. What a way to start the book. Count it all joy when you receive trials of various kinds. And a, a key word there to highlight, if you write in your Bible or if you highlight on your phone or circle, is the word when. There's your key word. When. It doesn't say if. It doesn't say maybe. It doesn't say those of you who live in, you know, the northern hemisphere or the southern. There's no qualifiers there. It says 
when. There are many promises in Scripture, and there are many statements that we kind of hold to and know as truth, and this is actually one of those as well, that trials will come into our life. Difficulties of all kinds of variety will come our way. And the longer we live, the more that we realize that this is actually the case, that life is full of difficulties from the diagnosis for cancer to the lost job, from the difficult person that you have to constantly interact with to the just unmet expectations of life. Trials and difficulties come. And it seems like at times, and you may be even sitting in here, it seems like at times where it just comes unrelenting, wave after wave. There's no break in the waves. It's just wave after wave after wave. And James says here in the text, count it all joy. What a statement to count it all joy when wave after wave of trial comes. But the trials are purposeful, which is what we see here in the text, that God is actually doing something. Look at verse 3. For, for you know, talking about these trials, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So these are not just random trials. God is not just sitting back, seeing life happen to all of us, and saying, well, there's nothing I can do about this. The world's just spinning and life is going. No, God says in all of the trials that come our way, every single one of them, there is purpose behind them. There's something that God is actually is doing that God can actually produce in the midst of this, even though they're difficult and hard. We have um, family in California, and so um, we've gone there at times, you know, in the, in the wintertime or in the summertime. When it's in the summertime, uh, we go to the beach, especially when the kids were younger, we'd go to the beach and, you know, to smell like the ocean. That's pretty much all that happens at the beach, right? You go in the water and you, you know, you smell like it. And so we'd sit out there and we'd play and have fun. And often we would see this group of like, I don't know, 20 young lifeguards in training. 12-year-olds, you know, these young kids, maybe 13, I don't know, their range, young kids, and they're, they're running back and forth on the beach, kind of increasing their strength, and they're, they're doing exercises together. And I remember a few times being out there where suddenly the whistle would blow, and they just beeline it into the ocean. And they start swimming. And I'm thinking, as I'm sitting on the beach, these are little kids heading into, like, big waves, Pacific Ocean, and they're going for this buoy that is way out there. And they're going to swim around it and then come back. All of them hopefully are coming back, right? But they are slowly being tested by their leaders who have gone through this very same process. They're increasing their stamina. They're getting better so that if one of us tries to swim around the buoy and is not making it, they can come and get us. And this is what the trials are actually doing in life. And this is what God actually wants to produce in us. It's a perseverance, a steadfastness, an ability to stay the course as a follower of Jesus, even as we head out into the waves, even as we head out into the difficulty and the hard things 
that come our way. So James then here says, this is what happens. Our lives are full of trials, and they come to us. They're, they're very difficult. He's not making light of their difficulty. But he says they're coming, and God has purpose in them. God is actually doing something through these trials. Then James goes on in verses, from verses 5 to about verses uh, 12, and he, he lays out kind of some practical things for us to keep in mind when the trials come. He starts by saying this, when trials come, verses 5 through 8, we won't read them all, he says, when they come, ask God for wisdom. In that moment of trial, in that moment of totally not understanding what God is doing, confusion around what's happening. He says, when you're lacking wisdom, which is definitely what happens in our trials, he says, ask God. Ask God for wisdom. Because not every trial ends with a silver lining. Not every trial ends with a beautiful sunset and everything's just super clear after a couple of days. Oh, this is what God is doing. No, there's like tons of questions not understanding how God could let this come into your life. And so he says, ask God, seek wisdom. And, and just really practical, three ways to do that is to have access to his spirit, which is in all of us as believers, his word, which we can go back to and look to, and his people. His spirit, his word, and his people. These three things, this little Trinity is a great help for us in the search for godly wisdom. God can speak to us directly, but he uses these gifts, the people around us, the word of God, and his Holy Spirit within us to, to begin maybe, possibly, to understand what God is doing or to stay even in our confusion and over time see that God is actually working out his purposes. So James says, in your trials, ask God for wisdom. Secondly, verses 9 through 11, he says, seek God's perspective. Look at verse 9 quickly. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Those of us who read that, in our, especially with our modern eyes, we say, that can't be right. Our mindset is, we are upwardly mobile. Things are getting better. Our bank account is growing. The value of our home is growing. We're moving up the ladder at our job. Everything's kind of in an upward trend. And James here is saying, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. James is saying, there is a perspective here that God is actually giving to us in the midst of trials where we get a, a glimpse into how God sees things. Now, none of us is begging to be in poverty, but God actually can work in ways that we wouldn't expect. He can take the simple, the lowly things, the, the places where he takes us, maybe where we were not expecting to go, and he does something with it. I mean, the whole beginning of the church is God taking these simple fishermen, you know, guys who didn't know anything, these disciples, and he starts the greatest movement in the history of our world from that. And this is what James is saying. When you're coming into trials and suddenly life takes a turn, it takes a left turn and you thought it should have taken a right turn, James is saying maybe you're getting a glimpse into God's perspective 
on what's actually meant to be. Third here, verse 12, he says, remember eternity. Verse 12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. When you have some fruit or something, let's say some apples on your table that is about to go bad, you know, you're like, okay, I need to either eat these quickly or what are you going to do? Maybe if you know how to do this, you're going to make a pie, an apple pie. I don't know how to do that, but I would find someone. Okay, these apples are, you know, getting old. Let's make an apple pie with them before they rot and we have to throw them out. We are not rotten fruit, okay? We're not fruit rotting on the table, but What James is saying is trials give us a sense of urgency and purpose because we should realize that all of our lives have an expiration date. Each each and every one of us have an expiration date. We know that we only have a small season of time on this planet, even if it's 90 years, 90 years in the, the span of our global history and in the span of eternity is like a blip. That's all it is. And so James says, when you have that in mind, that your life is just a vapor, it's like a a grass that's here in the summer and then turns brown, he says, that gives you a greater sense of urgency to want to know what is God doing? Even in this trial, what is God doing? Because obviously life is difficult and eventually I'm gonna grow old or get sick and I will die. And so God, what are you doing here? It it opens our eyes to what God is actually doing and being more purposeful. But James, to take us back up to verse 4, after giving us this advice, James says, uh, verse verse 4, a word there that's also really important is the word let. He says, and let steadfastness have its work. Because when trials come into our lives, when difficulties come, most of us, our natural tendency is to want to run away from them, to have them leave us as quickly as possible and to somehow have some sort of relief. And James is saying, will you be patient and let God have his way in your life? Will that work that he's doing, that some sort of producing that, that you and I can't see, and that's okay that we can't see it. It makes it really hard, but we can't always see it because we're human eyes. But James says, Let it do its work. Let it do its work. Don't run from it. Don't become bitter at God. Don't become angry at God because of the things that are happening. Let it do its production. And in time, sometimes long time, God will reveal what he's actually doing in these trials. Malcolm Muggridge, who was an English journalist and writer and who was saved later in life, wrote this, Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence, has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. Muggridge is saying, now he has the benefit of being 75 years old, he can look back at his life and see the things that really taught him something, the things where he really grew closer to God, 
We're through the difficult things, the trials, through the testing. And James says, testing is coming, but trust that God is actually doing something in the midst of it. So he begins with trials, but then he moves on to temptations. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So this is interesting. In this text here, in the original Greek, the word to test and the word to tempt and the word for trial are all the same word. Every, all three of those words are the same word that is being used. It's the context and the outcome that the reader knows makes the difference in this word. And so in this case, he's using that same word to tempt, but he is clarifying it, that the trials and the testing that we get from God are meant for our good. They are meant for our success. And the, at the same time, a trial has, has with it the opportunity to be tempted. And the tempt, whether it's coming from Satan or from sin, as, as James says here, that's in our own being, is, will lead us then to sin, which is not coming from God. And so James makes a few things clear here for us. First is that we are all lured by temptation. Every single one of us. And he uses the word lure, which, you know, we use for fishing, you know, for casting and getting something. And I haven't been fishing in a few years, but I remember a few years back going fishing, and it was like the end of our time. We were almost done. It's the classic fishing story, okay? It was almost the end of the time. We're in the canoe, and I cast out. I'm using one of the kids' fishing rods, okay? A small little thing with a lure, no bait on it, just casting it out. And then suddenly, boom, the, the rod is like a, a U upside down, okay? Just bent over, and we're getting drug along. And I'm trying not to break the line and slowly reeling this thing in. And pull up this massive fish. It's a fishing story, right? It was like this big, you know? It's just huge, okay? Big, largemouth bass. But I could tell that this fish was like old, okay? Like just, you know how they have the basket kind of black and dark and old and just massive. And this was in a lake where very few people go to. So I thought, maybe this fish has been hanging around this lake for its whole life. And now my like chintzy little jig was just too much. The jig was up, right? He just had to take it and bring it in. Every single one of us is lured. There's none of us that are sitting in a lake or sitting somewhere where no temptation touches us. We're not like that fish who can hang out maybe a whole lifetime unscathed by the lures that come around us. James says we are all lured and enticed by different things by different ideas. There's not a single one of us in here that isn't. And we all know this by our own experience. So he says we are all lured by temptation, but he also makes clear that God does not tempt us. The sin that is hanging right on the other side of that lure and that temptation, where that can lead when we start to go down that path 
is not coming to us from God. That's good to know. That's good to have clarity on that. Where, where, where is this going? If God is in all things, what is happening here? There's suddenly a, an experience, thoughts, and ideas that lead to action, and that leads to my sin. James says when that is happening, you've crossed the line where God is actually not in that because God is not touched by evil. He says then, the temptation comes from within. The temptation that we are facing comes from inside of us. When we become believers, there's something that's miraculous that happens. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives. He dwells within us. He seals us. We are God's forever. We are sealed by him. But God does not completely eradicate sin that is within us. And so like Paul talks about in Romans, there is this battle within us where the Spirit of God is in us and yet sin still remains in us. And so temptation at times grows and has a foothold in our life. Trials are causing us or calling us to trust in God, whereas temptation is calling us to the easier path, to our own vision for life. When Adam and Eve were in the the garden, we know this story well. God has placed them in this beautiful place where they can have everything that they need, all that they want and need is there. They are tempted then by the serpent and within them comes these ideas and they give over to these ideas and they take the fruit. They choose sin in that moment. They choose to replace all the, the beauty that God has given to them for something else. And so this is what we live with. This is our experience. We could all say a hearty amen to this. Whether it is the the joy of eating the food that we eat and the, the goodness that comes with that and then the temptation to take it further. Take it into the realm of, you know, what the Bible calls gluttony. We take a a gift from God and we're tempted and we take it further than it needs to go. We take this thing which is like our paycheck every two weeks or a month. This, it's a great transaction. You know, we, we do the work. Hopefully we do work that we love and there's fulfillment and we get a paycheck and it's good and we turn it into greed, desire, just insatiable desire for more and more. And so all these things, these trials even, can turn and they turn into temptation and James says, this is not from God. But it is a testing. Trials and temptations. And lastly here, as our time is running away, James reminds us about theology. Trials, temptations, theology. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. James says, here's what you need to understand. In the midst of these trials and temptations, one of the first things that happens to many of us, if not all of us, is a question comes up in our mind. When this difficulty comes into your life, when this temptation comes, again, for the, for the thousandth time, this temptation that you wish would just 
disappear from your life, this trial that just comes up again, the question that pops into our mind is this, is God good? Is God really good? This thing in my life is so difficult, causes me so much pain. How could there be a good God who would allow this to exist in my life? God, you're good. God, you're sovereign. You have control over everything. A good God would take this problem and just pull it out of my life. So James says, it's natural for you to to ask that question. And he says, for you to pass the test, for you to have a test, you know, show itself to be, you know, real and producing goodness in your life, we have to understand that God is good. And look how he says it. Don't be deceived. Your mind is going to want to tell you that God is not good because all these terrible things are coming into your life. Don't be deceived. Every good gift comes from God. Every good gift. Even the gifts that your neighbors or the people who don't know Jesus, I mean, you look at their life maybe, and you're like, man, they seem to have it all together. I mean, they got the, their house is nicer than mine. Their cars are nicer than mine. I, you know, they eat better food than I do. They just, they might even seem happier than you. You're like, everything seems to be working out really good for them. They just have like good things happening. God says, here's the difference between what's going on there and what's going on in your life is you actually know the source of that goodness. There is a thing called common grace where God gives to the world this gift of enjoyment to all the good things in this life. And the world just thinks that's what they are. They're just good things. They're beautiful art. They're great food. They're great drink. Go down the list. It's all those things. James says, here's what we know as believers. And here's what we hang on to in the trials and the difficulties. Everything good comes from God. And so when good things come into our life, and sometimes we have to be really intentional, especially in the trials, to name those good things. Those things are coming to us from God. James says you have to have, as a Christian, an ever-expanding, an increasing knowledge of the goodness of God. The theology, the theological understanding of who God is. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses is leading the children of Israel. And he comes to God. He's, he's able to have like a conversation with God. And Moses says, God, if I am to be the leader of these people, I need to know you. We're your people, and I'm the leader of your people. I need to know you. So I want to know you. Tell me about you. Who are you? So God says, that's, that's a great idea. You want to know me. That's right. You're leading your people, and I'm coming with you. And so Moses says, we know that you're coming with us. We, we like that. But he says again, I want to know you, God. Show me who you are. So God says to Moses, you can't, you can't totally take in who I am. He says, I, I, Moses asked to see his glory, and God says, you can't see my glory. If you saw me or, you know, face to face, you would be destroyed. Moses says, God says to Moses, In verse 19, he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. God says, okay, Moses, you want to know me? 
Here is one of the ways that you can know me, my goodness. You're going to see my goodness that's going to pass before you. And what was it that went before Moses' eyes? I have no idea. Was it future events? Was it Moses' present circumstances? Was it his experience? I don't know what Moses saw, but God said, if you want to know me, if you want to know me in the, the reality of your life, in the places where you're going, in the trials that you're going through, the thing that you need to have increasing in your life as a Christian and as a solid foundation is God is good. Because in the moment of your trial, you're not going to tend to think that. But the testing of your faith, remember, all these trials are the testing of our faith, is to produce in us, to see grow in us, a greater awareness of who God is so that we can come out the other end of whatever the trial is after a week, after a month, after five years, and we can still say, maybe through tears, God is good. He's good. And I've known that now through the testing. Let me close with this since our time is up. For many years, uh, many of us have heard about the, the growth of the Chinese church, you know, over the last 10, 20 years, you know, exploding the house church movement. And in the last 10 or even five years, if you've been following the news at all, you'll have known the, the greater increase of difficulty for being a Christian in China as the Communist Party has restricted more, and not just for Christians alone, but any kind of religion, Muslims, Hindus, anybody under massive pressure, anybody who's not secular in their worldview. And so Christians in China have been in wave after wave of trial and difficulty and standing up for Jesus in that context. They are, in many ways, setting a, a path for us to follow. And in 2020, just when the pandemic was started, there was going to be a conference of Chinese church leaders who were going to, you know, give talks in Malaysia, and it was obviously canceled because of COVID. And so they chose to, at great risk, to do this conference over Zoom, knowing that the, the government is watching all the internet in China. And they gave these talks, and these talks turned into a little book called Faith in the Wilderness, with the subtitle, Words of Exhortation from the Chinese Church. Words of Exhortation from the Chinese Church. Words for us to listen to from people who have gone through suffering and trials for the name of Jesus. And Chen Yi, one of the church planters and a house church leader, wrote this in one of his talks on suffering. He said, when suffering happens, ask God to grant you power to endure to produce perseverance through suffering. Let those around see that you are still able to find joy in God. In suffering, if your suffering is caused by sin, repent. If it is a trial from God, seek his good purpose and manifest his righteousness through the living out of his purpose in the suffering. Man, amen to Chen Yi, who is basically saying what James is telling us this morning. In your suffering... You will need to choose to boldly follow Jesus. And a theme throughout this book of James is boldness. You say that you are a Christian. I say that I am a Christian. James is posing the question to us. When the fiery trials come, 
When the difficulty comes, will we take the bold step and say, yes, I choose to follow Jesus, who's a good God, even in the midst of the chaos that is around me. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these words of exhortation from James. Thank you for speaking to us in this moment. Lord, would you just settle these truths into our hearts? Amen.